Welcome to Recovery Uncovered, brought to you by Whiskey and Milk. I'm Adam Clark. I'm Sarah Sellers. As recovering addicts, we're on a mission to fight the stigma against addiction. And inspire those struggling by sharing the experience of real people in recovery. Because addiction doesn't discriminate. Behind every struggle, there's a person with a story. This This is is Recovery Recovery Uncovered. Uncovered. Attention, now arriving at your destination. The last house on the block. Welcome back to Recovery Uncovered, episode five. Just going to have me and Sarah today. We're going to be diving into our recovery stories a little bit deeper, focusing more on the sobriety side, you know, what we did to get sober, what life's been like since then, um, as opposed to the the kind of drunk-a-log that you got the, uh, the first go-around with just the two of us. So I hope everybody's ready. Oh, I'm excited to be here. You sounded like a free recording at the very beginning. You know, you just scared came me off a little. The top. Yeah. God gave me that one. Love it. So you going first? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like um we touched on your recovery the first episode, but I don't feel like I even really know what what that very last moment was for you. And then if you decided then you were just you were gonna do whatever it takes to get sober or what was, what was your conception of getting sober? Um, so like up until a day or two before I went to rehab, I wasn't ready to get sober. I didn't want to get sober. And even into going to rehab, like I knew I wanted to get off the heroin. I wanted to get off the painkillers, but I didn't have the idea that like, I want to go stone cold sober. I thought that was kind of freaking lame uh, at that point in my life. Um, but basically what happened was, is, you know, at that point I had been doing heroin for like six or seven months. I didn't last long on it. You know, the painkillers I managed well for, well, I say, right, um, right. but I managed for two or three years before I switched to the heroin. Um, and I kind of talked about what that was like on our first episode, but basically the first time I did it, I spent $20 it was the best high I'd ever had, and that $20 worth lasted me three days. Seven months later, I was spending $200 a day, stealing at least $100 a day from my grandmother to support the habit uh, or the addiction, and, um, like, I was just miserable. You know, I, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. Uh, I couldn't do anything without it. I couldn't wake up in the morning. I couldn't go to sleep without it. I couldn't go to work. Like, my whole life had got to the point where it revolved around, like, I got to get money so I can get dope, and I do the dope so I can get some more money. Um, And it was just this brutal, endless cycle. And so I'd got caught once stealing from my grandmother already. Um, My dad busted me. And we actually went to a bar where we were talking about it. And, uh, you know, he kind of, like, laid out the, the proof in front of me. And... He kind of, you know, like fed me the excuse. Like, I don't think he wanted to believe that I was as bad as I was or that the situation was what it was. But I ended up telling him like that, well, let me back up. The girl I was dating at the time, her family was very well off. Both parents were doctors, owned multiple medical clinics, like they had money. And so my excuse was like, 
I just feel so insignificant compared to her and her family. So that's why I was taking the money so I could show her the the life that she was accustomed to or some bullshit like that. Um, and Did I you believe that a little bit? No, I didn't believe it at all because I was spending all, okay, all that right. money on dope. Right. Um, but when I was talking to him, he asked me that. He was like, what are, you, are you just trying to impress your girlfriend? And I was like, oh, that's it right there. I'm going to run with that lie. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I told him. And I, I don't know if he believed me or not, but he at least bought it enough to kind of get me off the hook there, you know, swore that I was never going to steal from her again. And then like the next day I was back to taking money from her. Um, you know, I would go to her house and from the outward appearances, if you weren't looking close enough, it looked like, man, Adam's like doing a whole lot, you know, ever since my granddad died, he's over there taking care of his grandmother. He's going and getting her groceries, taking her to appointments. And I was doing all those things, but I'd go to Kroger and get her 50 bucks worth of groceries and get 200 bucks cash back. Right. Um, and so, you know, I got caught again and this time there was no talking my way out of it. My dad was out of town and so he called my mom and my stepdad and like, they don't talk to each other. They're not cool. They're not friends. Like, I guess it's been cordial for the most part. Um, you know, their interactions, but like when they're talking and they're on a team against me, like some shit's gone down. Yeah. And so I get a call from my mom and my stepdad and it's not a question of what I'm doing. It's just, Hey, we're coming to your house to pick up your grandmother's debit card. I'm like, Oh shit. Yeah. And so they come pick it up and I tell them like, I don't even know what I tell them at that time. Like I was high then. Uh, and I told them I had to go to work, which I did, but I had to go to the dope man first. So I did that, went to work and they're like, we need you to come over and talk to us when you get off work. And I got off at like my normal time at at where the restaurant I was at, I don't know, 10, 10 30, whatever. But I just told them like, I'm still not off. I'm still not off. And eventually it got past midnight and uh, I didn't go over there. And I remember going to see the dope man after I got off work and I texted dude. And then I got a text from my dad that just said, don't. And so like he was looking at my messages. I don't know if it was through the Verizon account or or what happened. But like he knew as soon as I text dude to go pick up. Um. If only that man didn't have an iPhone. You know, you know? he didn't. He had an Android. Oh, oh. Yeah. <gasps> okay. Yeah, so I, I'm still not 100% sure how that happened. So there's like a procedure that happens when you, like, I got really used to the procedure of getting in trouble, coming up with something, getting them off my back, and then doing well for a little while. And then, you know, then the procedure would happen again. And I, it's almost like sergeant would come out in me. And I'm like, all right, I got to do my job. Um, you know, I got to cry probably. I need to fake cry. <laughs> like, need oh, yeah. to be really emotional about it. And and when when my parents would break that procedure, it really did shake me up a little bit, mm-hmm. you know? And then in some moments, I got better at what I was doing. There were some moments, though... And I mean, shake up the procedure by like, like a perfect example. He's texting you, don't. I, I'm sure that sounds like it was new. Yeah, and that had never happened. Yeah, and and it, when they did that, make you know some drastic change in the way that they were approaching me, making it more serious. I had two choices: like I can fess up, 
I can feel the real impact of, you know, I'm in trouble and this is not right. Or I can, I can get better at lying. Mm -hmm. I can, I can build it up better. I'm like, all right, this is my showtime. You know, (laughs) this is, this is big. Um, so I'm like listening to this. I'm thinking that procedure is definitely just changing for you. Yeah. I could no longer talk my way out of it at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he sent me that message that said, don't, but like, I was hopelessly addicted. Like I, I had to get something in my system. So I did what any addict does. I downloaded text now and got a new number and you got better, man. You didn't fess up. Yep. You got better. Not yet. Yep. Uh, and you know, I went and I don't even know if I got it that night or if I ended up getting some the next morning, but like I, I bought dope one more time and then same thing. You know, I went to work that next night. My parents are like, we don't care what time it is. You're coming over to talk to us when you get off work. And so, like, I was miserable already. You know, I didn't go to their house with the intention of, like, fessing up. Or I I don't know what I thought was going to happen, but I kind of already felt like I was at the end of my rope. I felt hopeless. Uh, I was talking to some guys about it last night. Like, you know, if there was a moment where you realized that, like, that I was an addict. And that moment had happened multiple years before that. And yeah. I remember being at this house that I lived at. And, um, sorry, I'm parched. <laughs> being at this house that I lived at and then just like sitting there and having the realization that this was as good as my life was going to get. Like I'm a pill junkie. I'm a bartender. I'm dating this girl who's like, sort of going to hair school, but also kind of failing out. And like, that was it. I had reached my peak and I had always grown up as a a dreamer, a big goal setter and thought that I had, you know, all these things that I was going to achieve, these big ambitions. And I just remember feeling like, all right, this is my life now. And so that second night when they told me that I had to come to their house, I just came. Um, and they set me down in the living room and we had some really awkward small talk at first. Like, how you been? Like, I don't, I don't remember what it, but I was just like, this is weird. Like we all know what's happening here. Yeah. And they asked me like, what's going on? And I just kind of blurted it out. Like I'm doing heroin. Uh, and I, I wish I like could, re- could have recorded the look on my parents' face. Breaking procedure. Yeah. And you fess up this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I finally got honest for the first time in many years. Yeah. And, you know, after the initial shock, I don't remember the the whole details of the conversation, but they just asked me, like, do you want help? I said, yes. Uh, and so that's where, like, that's the moment where my whole life started to change. You know, yeah. my, uh, my stepdad started looking into treatment centers local to me. Um, I gave him my keys, staying with y'all, not going back to my girlfriend's house. Had to call my girlfriend and tell her because she didn't know. She knew that I had used to have a pill problem because that's what I told her when we started dating because everybody at work was like, Adam's a pill junkie. And I was like, oh, no, that was old, Adam. I'm, I'm better now. Yeah. Uh, I was not better. Right. And, you know, I stayed the night at their house, and the next morning they call my stepsister who I had no idea 
was the director of Jackson, Tennessee's anti-drug coalition. Oh, good. Yeah. I had no idea what she did for a career. Like, I knew she had a social work degree or something like that. And that was that was the extent of it. But she connected me with this lady, Diane, who, fingers crossed, we'll have as a guest uh, here sooner than later. Um, and Diane came over, and Diane's in recovery. It's got to be like 20-something years now. Um, and, you know, she was a meth addict. And... She sat down and, and talked to me and kind of shared some of her story, showed me pictures of her last mugshot. And as we both know, like another alcoholic or an addict can connect with an alcoholic or an addict like nobody else can. You know, when yeah. my parents told me, like, quit drinking, quit doing drugs, I'm like, blah, 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 lame. But I could tell that she knew how I felt. And, yeah. you know, I, I had become willing at that point. I'd, I'd found a moment of clarity. And so she started reaching out to see where we could get me in treatment. And man, God just started showing up big. Like she called this treatment center uh, and she may have called a couple ones first, but she called this one in Scurry, Texas. It was called the Treehouse. Uh, and she was like, I think this place is perfect for you. I'm going to see if we can get you a bed. So she makes a couple calls. They get me a bed. And then they're like, all right, we need to send over your insurance. And I was still on my parents' insurance at this point. So, like, I, I still had that. I was 25. It's real lucky. Well, sort of, because they didn't take it. Oh. Yeah, none of it would have been covered. And so she made some other calls, and they got it scholarshiped. Oh, wow. Yeah, I found out later we got the, like, the receipt. It wasn't really a bill because it was paid for, but it was $52,000 that was just covered. Wow. Um, and then, you know, my parents got me a plane ticket. And I detoxed in my mom's house for like, I don't know, 24, 48 hours before I was on a plane to Scurry, Texas. And all of a sudden, like, I'd got honest 48 hours later. I'm like in the back of the druggy buggy that they picked me up in at the Dallas airport to take me to Scurry. Yeah. Just a little middle of nowhere, nothing town. When the treatment center was fully staffed and all the beds were full, it doubled the population of the town. Okay, I, I have a theory about this, though. Yeah. I think the best treatment centers are in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I couldn't escape. And then the best recovery communities are in the middle of the biggest drinking towns ever. It's true. <laughs> like, I mean, where are you going to find the most alcoholics and addicts? Exactly. You would think the opposite for both things, but it's it's so true. But I think it's good that I wasn't in my hometown. Like, there's good treatment Absolutely. centers in Jackson, Tennessee, and I have yeah. several friends who have gotten sober there. But I remember being a couple days into treatment, like going for a walk with one of the dudes I'd made friends with and like having the thought cross my mind, like if I could get a hold of my guy somehow, if he knew somebody down here and they had a drone that he could airdrop me in some dope, like I was crazy. I had a, a girl in my adolescent treatment. She, um, she got on that email. She emailed her drug dealer. I don't know how like she got that email, but yeah. she had him drive to our treatment center and try to drop something off. Wow. Somehow that master plan didn't work out. I don't remember how, but <laughs> I'm just mystified that she had her drug dealer's email. Email. I know. I didn't even know mine's real name. Only one of them. I knew their actual name. I mean, you know, you, you could go through some stuff to find the person that you need. You know, true. I've gone to some crazy extents. Yeah. Um, but that treatment center changed my life. 
you know, I, uh, I did some detox there and the first handful of days they had me on a Suboxone taper to control the withdrawals. So I did that for like five days to kind of get normalized and, and my, my body just regulated, I guess. And I started doing intense therapy. And the thing that was really cool about the treehouse, it, it was heavily trauma focused. Mm. Um, and I, I got a lot of childhood trauma in my story, you know, sexual abuse at age seven or maybe it was a little later, eight or nine. Um, but my parents divorced at seven. And then my dad and his second wife, who was first his secretary, um, like they were both in active alcoholism and addiction when I was at their house. And so they would be yelling, screaming, fighting at each other. Like I never really got yelled or cursed at too much. I never had hands laid on me. But I remember as a kid, like laying in bed, holding my little brother, crying myself to sleep because I was afraid. Yeah. Um, and I never talked about that. I had never unpacked any of that. And so I got to unpack that with, with therapists and with other people in recovery who worked at the treatment center and like getting a lot of that out of my system really opened me up to, I guess, being willing to see like, you know, I have to take responsibility for all of my actions, but the, the way I was raised, the way I was brought up, the things I experienced, like that wasn't all my fault. And a lot of that shaped the way that I acted. It shaped how I dealt with negative feelings. Yeah. You know, I would just push everything into this little black box deep inside me and lock the key and throw that some bitch away. Yeah. Like I didn't want to, uh, to deal with any feelings that were at all negative. And it made me very averse to confrontation, which I still am to a degree, mm-hmm. uh, not nearly as bad as I used to be. Um, but, you know, that, that treatment center changed my life. And coming out of there, I did 28 days, and then I did uh, intensive outpatient um, treatment for, I think, six weeks at a Cumberland Heights satellite campus in Jackson, Tennessee. Shout out. Yeah. yeah Cumberland, Heights. Cumberland Heights. Yeah. Appreciate you guys. And, you know, I moved back into a really structured environment. Lots of people do sober living, but I moved in with my mom and my stepdad. And, you know, they had Life 360 on my phone. And my girlfriend had Life 360 on my phone. Okay. And Wait, so you made it with your relationship? Well, for a little bit. Okay. <laughs> uh, we broke up. <laughs> Same. Same. The, the night that I went to treatment. But then, like, two days later, she rode with us to the airport to, like, take Okay, me. yeah. Uh, and she was like, I'm not kissing you, but I'll give you a hug. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, when I, uh, I wrote Did y'all mail letters. back and forth? Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, me too. I wrote her letters. <laughs> and uh, then when I got phone privileges, I finally called her. I waited a couple of days, actually. Like, I called my mom and some other people first because I just didn't know what the hell to say. Like, yeah, our whole relationship's been alive. I've been lying yeah. to you the whole time. I kind of suck. Um, yeah. Did you have time to, to go over that with your therapist and impatient? Like the girlfriend situation? Yeah. I don't know how much we talked about that. We did some. Yeah. Um, I know it's hard to remember that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I know I talked to it like I definitely talked about it some with my therapist because I had like the trauma therapist that I went to, a regular therapist, and then we had groups you know, all day long that was a lot of talk therapy. Uh, I did CBT, DBT, um, you know, a bunch of different types of, of therapy. And so I definitely discussed it, but I don't know that I really had a game plan. But, like, 
I did love her, you know? Yeah. And she obviously loved me. Like there was still something there, but the trust was gone. And so, you know, we got back together when I, when I got out of treatment and it lasted for a while, but it was never the same. Like she was never able to trust me the same again. Uh, that was the worst amends I ever tried to make in my amends process. Are we supposed to do, okay. Oh, well. (laughs) Are we supposed to do that? (laughs) I was. (laughs) I'm kidding. I needed to. I'm kidding. Um, But yeah, I like asked her, you know what I could do to make things right. And she was like, mm, probably nothing. I was like, oh, good. Nothing as in like, don't speak to me anymore or just like you're good? No, nothing like there's probably nothing you can do to make it right. But then we continued to date. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of have a similar situation like that. And I really, really cared about the guy, but it was so hard to come out of an impatient experience like that and be off drugs and alcohol for so long and then I'm looking at this person who knows a different person and I I was like trying to say I'm I'm not who you think I am and I don't mean like this new like recovering person I mean like that other person like that was double I don't remember what you even know Mm -hmm. you know I I don't know it just the connection wasn't real for me, you know, it was at least like, does that make sense? Like, no, I get what you're saying. The like, connection was real. It was just, I was putting out something totally different and I don't remember what I put out. Completely false front. False front. It was a false front. And so trying to go back into that relationship was really difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it was doomed to fail from the start for me. Yeah. I mean, like I had, I had destroyed her trust. I destroyed her self-esteem. Like I remember being on heroin like me and her having sex and I fall asleep during sex and I start mumbling about chicken nuggets and like that's what what she gets out of our our experience there is it like you know obviously wasn't good enough he fell asleep and now he's mumbling about chicken nuggets like right I can only imagine what that that had to do to her self-esteem and there were so many other you know, other little situations like that. So, you know, that relationship didn't end up working out in the end. Um, but now, like, we're not, like, super close or anything. But it's one of the only exes that I have that I'll still talk to occasionally. Like, yeah. we're friendly. She's still friends with my family. Like, she got really close with my family while I was in treatment. Um, Same. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like her and my mom still text and How stuff. How do we have this such a similar situation? I, I don't know. Well, since we do, I just want to dis- disclaim um, that, that relationships can work. <laughs> They're doomed. <laughs> They're not all doomed. We're just, we just happen to be the percentage of uh, those that don't. Um, yeah. But I have a lot of respect for, for couples that make it through something like this. Mm-hmm. A lot of respect. I mean, it's that's a lot of of soul searching and and a lot of communication that has to go into it. And I think in both of our cases, there could have been and you know there could have been a different um, there there could have there could yeah. have been a different outcome. outcome. But uh, but yeah, <laughs> keep yeah. going. It okay. just wasn't like we've been dating for like six months. Like we started dating like right after I started doing heroin. So like the whole beginning of it was just fake and then trying to recover from that it just it's not the same as like somebody who's been married or been in a very long-term relationship right. prior to treatment 
Well, it's it's rough when you know I, I'm thinking, um, you know, I'm I'm, and I remember one time he was asking me, "What's wrong with you?" And and I was detoxing from something that I couldn't get, and so I'm like withdrawing, you know, and I'm like shaking, and I'm like, I'm just so sad, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like my emotions are really just all over the place, you know, yeah, and having like this intimate moment, but the <laughs> <laughs> I'm sad. It's totally different. Yeah, it's all fake. Yeah. I've been taking bars and I can't find any. <laughs> I'm dead. So I don't know. That was that was uh tough to tough to come out of that. But so for you, what was it like with your inner circle or if you had one? No no uh judgment if you didn't have friends at the shorts the end. I'm I'm on that train. But but for the people that you knew when you came back from treatment, did you have an easy time still hanging out with Cut people? Them all off. Oh, every single one of them. No, really, yeah, all of them. <gasps> Were you sad about it? Not even really. There's a couple of them that I've like reconnected with and that I, I've talked to occasionally. But I got my phone from my counselor in treatment. We couldn't have phones the whole time. But I told her I was like, I want to go clear out numbers out of my phone, and I deleted like 250 phone numbers of people I drank with, people I got high with, people I bought drugs from, like all of them. And I just disappeared, straight ghosted all of them. And God, I had such a different response. I don't know that that's the right move for everybody, but I feel like it, it is was the, the right, right move, move for, me. for me. It would have been the right move. Yeah. Which wow. like at that time, I had already isolated a lot. Like right. I don't know, four people knew I was doing heroin, three dealers and one dude I sold to. Like, and that was it. Yeah. See, I, I don't, I didn't do heroin. So I, I remember asking someone in my adult outpatient, I was like, so like you and your buddies when y'all would do heroin. And he was, he was like, wait, you don't hang out with people and do heroin. Yeah. You just melt into whatever piece of furniture you're sitting on right. or wreck your car going down I-40. Yeah. I did that. Yeah. Um, Solo. Yeah, but, like, I just, I, I completely got rid of that community. I had one friend who had been through treatment, um, and it's kind of been on and off with sobriety. And so I hung out with him a little bit. We went to a couple meetings. And then one time he came over to hang out, and he brought, like, two Budweiser's and a blunt. And I'm like, this ain't it, bro. Like, yeah. I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. I remember going to hang out because my girlfriend, like, we worked at the same restaurant. We were in the same friend group. And I remember going to hang out. Did, I'm sorry. Did you go back to that job? Oh, no. I'm curious. No, okay. No, no. All right. No, the uh, the morning that I left for rehab, I called my boss. And uh, he was super, super cool, dude. Still a really good guy. And uh, I called him. I'm like, hey, Ian, uh, I'm not going to be in for my shift today. And he's like, okay, what's going on, man? I'm like, uh, I'm going to rehab. And he was like, thank God. So, like, oh, everybody uh, knew. Yeah. I thought that I had everyone fooled, but everybody knew. And, you know, I had to find a, a new group of friends. Like, oh, what I was saying is I, I went to hang out with some old friends with my, my girlfriend at the time. And she was, like, prefacing them, like, hey, you know, Adam's sober now. And then one of my friends uh, that she was talking to was like, wait, Adam doesn't drink anymore? And she was like, no, that's what sober means. He's like, so he doesn't even smoke weed? He's like, no, he's sober. He's like, well, what the fuck does he do then? Yeah. They're like, 
because that was my whole identity, my whole personality. Well, and like that's that was my whole friend group. Yeah, all like, of mine. It was there, sober is not a thing. It's just not. Mm-hmm. Like well, it's just weird. Yeah. To not be drinking on the weekends or smoking during the day. Like it's it's almost unheard of. <laughs> like Yeah. It it's you know, if you're gonna be in that group, but like if you're, you know, um s- someone else, like then we just you're labeled as you don't do fun things. Mm-hmm. You know, that at least that's how I labeled people. I 100%. was like, you're just simply boring. Yeah, you're lame. You're lame. Like, you yeah. just don't know what you're missing out on. And that's who I'd surrounded myself with. Right. I had already pushed away all of my good friends. Like, I got a friend who our parents were best friends when we were born. So literally have known each other since we were born. And... He's one of the people I'm still friends with, but he never did any of the stuff that I was doing. Like I'd already pushed him out of my life. I hadn't, we talked occasionally like a little bit, but I hadn't been talking to him for years. The people that I went to high school with who were good friends, good influence, like I'd pushed them away. Yes. Um, and so I had to find I a whole new friend I could name 50 to 100 people right now and I won't do it. Because I think, and I, I would them. do it if I could remember, like, every single one of them, because I wouldn't want to leave one out. But how many people I wish I was friends with in high school? And Absolutely. Like, how many people I wish I had been around and asked and, and just hung out with? Because I, I, like, looking back, I'm like, you were a really resilient kid. Yeah. And then now it's interesting, like, because I'm friends with a lot of those people on Facebook. And, like, yes seeing what some of them are doing with their lives. I'm like, dude, you're killing it. I know. Why was I not hanging out with you? Like, I didn't think that you were cool at the time. Right. Like, you're absolutely killing life. Yes. Um, Yeah, shout out to those people. (laughs) I don't know if they're going to, you don't know who who you are, but you know who you are. You may see it. Especially the ones that that didn't like me. You're probably the best ones. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) You're probably doing the best. But I had to find a whole new friend group. You know, I I found other people in recovery. Um, You know, it was suggested of me when I got sober to find recovery meetings and hit 90 of them in 90 days. Yeah. And so I did that and I I did more than 90. And very quickly I found a community of people who loved me for me, for where I was at, were just happy that I was there and that I was sober and had found a way to live without drugs and alcohol and have a happy existence still because that's something that I didn't think was possible coming into treatment. Like at some point in treatment, I realized like, okay, I can live sober, but I thought it was going to be lame. Yeah. Like I didn't think that there was going to be any fun left. And I started doing stuff with people, with people that I would have called lame, doing activities that I would have called lame, having a great damn time. You know, going to Perkins at 10 o'clock and stay until 2 in the morning, shooting the shit, telling old stories, talking about recovery, um, laughing my ass off, you yeah. know. And I hadn't had genuine joy and laughter in a long time. Yeah. Like, I had to have been high or tripping on something or on Molly or like some sort of chemical influence to feel that kind of joy. And I started feeling that kind of joy in my life. You know, and it was hard at times, like early sobriety. It wasn't all just pink cloud for me, but I had 
like I said, I had a really good support system. Like my parents were drug testing me and I started building a relationship with them again, which I, I started to like, yeah. you know, I, they were the people that I would have classified as lame for a long time because they didn't live the way that I was wanting to live and they didn't condone that way of living. Um, you know, there, there's been ups and downs in my recovery since, since that point. Like the first year was, was kind of easy. There wasn't a whole lot that, that went down that was just crazy. And then, you know, year two, like stuff started happening with family relationships. You know, I had five different therapists that I went to tell me I needed to cut off my father. And it's because he's one of us. Um, and I still don't speak to him, but I've been told in the last couple of weeks by people in the recovery community, I know that he's sober and doing well. So, you know, at this point there's potential for a reconnection there that I didn't know if ever was possible, but we started having issues where like I had to call the police on him like seven times in like a year and a half period. Uh, I had to put him like lock him up for suicide watch two different times. Um, and that was something that like, I mean, I hope nobody ever has to deal with. Nobody should ever have to deal with, but I, those are things that I absolutely would have drank or gotten high over that because of the support, because of the, the lessons that I learned and because of the, the spiritual connection that I'd formed with God, like I was able to walk through that and be okay. And I was able to like have a crazy night where I had to call the police on him and this or that happened. And then like the next day be cutting up about it. Like dude, some crazy shit happened to me last night and still be able to experience joy. Yeah. You know, I, I went through a breakup with that girl who like at a certain point I thought I was going to marry. Um, and my family did too. Like she's still in some family pictures that my mom has at the house. Um, but through those ups and downs, like I learned that there's certain things that I, I needed to do for my recovery to stay sober. You know, I need to be in some form of recovery community. And you can find that in a lot of different places. Some people find it in 12-step meetings. Some people find it in church. Some people find it in therapy groups. Like there, there's all sorts of, of ways to find it. But I found that community for me is really, really important. Yeah. And I found that that my spiritual connection with my creator is really, really important for me. You know, I, I'd grown up religious. I'd grown up in the church. Like one granddad was a preacher. The other was a deacon in the Baptist church. We were in church every time the doors were open. And I was heavily involved. And then I'd completely turned away from it in my drinking and using. And so I, I found a connection with God again that that I was able to lean on in those tough times. And I started making it through these tough experiences and then being able to look back and see that, man, God carried me through something that I didn't know that I'd be able to get through. If you laid that situation out in front of me first and been like, hey, you're about to go through some shit, Adam. This is what it looks like. I would have told you I couldn't. But, I, you know, I began to be able to, to look back at those and start having more faith. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that improved my life. And so... I don't know where I was going with that, but like over the years, there, there's been those ups and downs. I've gone through multiple different jobs in recovery. Uh, every single one of them, God just laid in my lap, I feel like. 
Like when I was in treatment, I applied for 230 something jobs and didn't get a call back. And then from somebody I met in recovery, I got my first job. And then the second job I had in recovery, I got that from somebody else I knew in recovery. And then the job I have now, I got started with that company because somebody I knew who was also in recovery worked there. You know, my, my life today is unimaginable compared to what it used to be like. You know, I had I had all these goals and hopes and dreams when I first got sober, and the majority of them were material-related. Like, I wanted the nice car, I wanted the house, I wanted the wife, the kids, and I didn't really want much else. But, like, I didn't get the wife or the kids yet, but, you know, I have a house, I have a car. It's not the most expensive or the nicest one, but it's a nice car. You know, I have a good job that, pays me an income that allows me to afford all of my bills and then have access to have some fun on the side. You know, I have relationships built back with my family. Like my mom and my my stepdad, there was zero trust when I got out of rehab. And I remember thinking like, I'm 28 days sober. You know, I've changed my whole life. And like, I had to have some people explain to me like, Adam, you uh, screwed around for seven years before you got sober. You lied to him that whole time. Like, this one little month ain't shit, bro. Yeah. You're going to have to have a track record of doing the right thing. And over time, I've been able to build that trust back with them and, you know, like make amends to my parents through not behaving the way that Adam used to behave by not lying to him. It's funny now if you come to, like, when I go home to family dinner at my parents' house, Because they always hear some wild shit that I did. Inevitably, like, something will spark an old memory, and I'll be like, oh, yeah, like, that was the time that I was trying to snort a line of heroin going down I-40 and got ran into a Dodge Ram 3500 Dually and should have died. How do we have time for all of this? You know, I had so much. Like, I don't know why I'm still remembering things now. And I'm just thinking, like, I, you know. How do you get the time to cover this much ground? There's so much. It's it's wild. It's just the disease is like accelerated. And insanity is such a huge part of alcoholism and addiction itself. Because none of it makes sense. No. You know? <laughs> none, none of my of behaviors for years on end, like, it was just insanity. And it was just like, I would do whatever I had to do had to do whatever I needed to do to get the next fix because at the root cause of it like I just didn't like the way I felt I felt different from a young age I never felt like I fit in um and when I started using drugs and alcohol I felt normal like don't get me wrong I got messed up but there was always a certain point like when I would start to drink or when I would start to use where it was like (sighs) ah And I felt like that I felt like what everybody else felt at their natural state. Like there was something that was missing from me. And drugs and alcohol gave me what normal people already had. And like the the links that I went to to chase that escape, you know, crossed lines that I, I never thought I would cross. I used to joke like before I started doing painkillers and stuff like, yeah, I'm going to do heroin on my 80th birthday. Like, ha 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 ha. You know, you're 80 then who cares if it kills me? And then I started at like 24. Yeah. And 
you know, like that's something I, as a kid, if you've been like, yeah, what do you want to be when you grow up? I wouldn't have said heroin addict, you know, yeah. I would have said I would never do that. Like I may drink and smoke weed, but I'm not going to do cocaine. I'm not going to do acid, mushrooms, Molly, Adderall, Xanax, like the list of substances that I did regularly, not yeah. stuff like, I don't think I ever did a drug and just tried it once and was like, meh. Even the drugs that I didn't like as much, if it was there, I was Even the do ones it. that had me on someone's bedroom floor, like rocking back and forth, unable yeah. to breathe. Those, I was like, That's, I'll just do it a different way. Yeah, <laughs> I, I took too much. Like there was always some rationalization yeah. to it. Yes. But it's just, it's just crazy how different my life is today Absolutely. from how it was back then. Like looking back on it, I know that that was me. Like Adam was the person who did all those things. Like I stole from my grandmother who had dementia. Um, but like it feels like a completely different person. Yeah. You know, like there, there's almost like a, a disconnect in my mind because I'm so far from that person today that it's like, I don't know, it's just wow. You yeah. Know? But the, the cool thing about that too is I've been able to write so many of those wrongs. Like before my grandmother passed, I paid her back every penny I stole from her and then some. I didn't know that. Yeah. Her property taxes hadn't been paid in multiple years. I paid all of her property taxes. Wow. Like she wouldn't just straight up take money from me. So I just found ways to to give her money. You wow. Know, she'd send me to the grocery store. Like I'm not taking your card. I'm going to use mine and I'm going to buy you groceries. Her vacuum broke. I bought her a really expensive new Dyson ball that was lightweight. It was easier for her to push. Wow. Um, and it was so cool how God gave me just enough money to do what I needed to do. And the more responsible I was with it, it was like the more money would come in. Um, you know, I was able to get out of all the debt that I had gotten into during that time. Yeah. I remember... I think I shared on it on the last podcast, but I remember telling debt collectors like, yeah, I'm a heroin addict and I just got out of treatment. This is what I can pay. And they would set me up on like a $10 a month payment plan. But then a couple months later, I'd call them back and be like, I have everything that I owe. This is what I'm going to pay and, and pay it off. And like, it got exciting. Like, holy shit, I'm doing this. Like I would text my family, like just paid off another bill, just paid yes. off a student loan just did this for my grandmother and like I began to feel proud of myself. What you're saying right now is so relevant to me as well in terms of, you know, doing it the first time, maybe like making an amends to someone or, you know, um, just anything that we don't want to do in recovery. It's like pulling teeth the first few times. Yeah. And then when I started to feel relief from it, I mean, I made amends to a girl who I really had a resentment against for years. Like, could not stand her name. The minute I sent that amends to her, it felt like I had found freedom. Yeah. And I, I can talk about her now. I can wish her well. Like, I could see her at Kroger tonight. I'm not going Kroger, but I could see but her it would be fine. anywhere and it would be fine. It would be completely fine. That's one of the coolest parts about amends to me is like before getting sober, before starting to make amends, I couldn't look the world in the eye. Right. I couldn't look myself in the eye. And now as I've made amends to these people, like I can look them in the eye again. I know that, 
yeah, I screwed shit up on a huge level. But I've also done what I needed to do to make it right. Yeah. And 99% of the amends I've made, you know, some of them were financial. Some of them were just from harms I caused people. But the most frequent response that I get is, I just want you to keep doing what you're doing and stay sober. Yeah. And, you know, that's been my living amends to a lot of people. You know, like my mom. There ain't no telling how much money they forked out for me, how many times I took painkillers from their cabinet, different stuff like that. And, like, I never had to, quote, pay them back in any sort of way. But I make it, uh, I make a point to almost every day call my mom. Because for years, she cried herself to sleep at night because she didn't know if I was dead alive or in jail. Yeah. And so that's part of my amends to her. Like, she should never have to feel that way again. Yeah. Um, and, like, me and her have the best relationship. I love calling and talking to her. Like, we talk about the family gossip and what's going on and talk about what I'm doing in my life. And, you know, she helps me, like, brainstorm ideas for the podcast. Like, this the shirt that I'm wearing, me and her designed that together. Did she really help yeah. with that? Yeah. When I was visiting last week or two weekends ago, like we sat down at the kitchen with my laptop and brainstormed ideas and like, all right, let's try this font. Let's try that font. Let's go over this. That's so fun. Yeah. And so like the, the amends that's so scary before you go make it, it's such a rewarding process. It really is. You get to see the beauty that comes out of it. Absolutely. And I, I, I think it's, it's, you know, there is a process for a reason with recovery. We do, you know, we admit that we're powerless first. And then we go into like laying down a spiritual foundation. Um, I don't think I could have gone to, into amends first. No. It took as exactly as long as it needed for me. And even still, sometimes the amends of leave them alone is really hard. It is. And, um, <laughs> You know, the amends of just be kind is really hard. Those are you know? tough sometimes. Those are really hard sometimes. Well, I mean, what you said is perfect. Like, if you look at how 12-step programs view amends, like, there's a reason it's not until nine. Right. Because you need to, to do some work on you first. Right. And change your behaviors and how, how you are as a person. And then that also gives you some time. Because people aren't going to believe you right away. Like, no. how many times did you say, like, oh, I'm never getting high again, or I'm not doing this again, or, you know, swore off of this behavior or that behavior, and then the next week we were back to doing it, you know? Yeah. I got such a track record of, like, I can tell a good story, you yeah. know? I can bring the tears on, and part of me actually feels that emotion in the moment. You know, it's not all fake. But I also know in the back of my head, like, once I get out of this situation, I'm back to it. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I'm, I'm, um, and I'm, I'm very aware now that does, that process does not end. Yeah. Almost ever. <laughs> it does not end. It's no. constant. Cause I still am not perfect. Right. You know, I still wrong people. Sometimes I, I'm talking to somebody and all of a sudden it's like, I just lied. Yeah. Like, I just lied to you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know why I did, but I wanted you to think some way about me. And so I said that thing and that was not the truth. Yeah. And it's cool because we get to, to clean up our side of the street a little bit quicker nowadays. Yeah. Like I don't have to let that icky feeling just hang over my head for years at a time. Like 
sometimes I let it hang for a little bit. I'm not always 100% quick to, to go back and write where I've been wrong, but I have a much easier time doing it because it's not a mountain anymore. Yes. Like it's just a little little pile that I got to go clean up. Yeah. I, I remember that terrified me when I started, you know, looking at recovery and really taking everything very seriously that one day I would have to make amends for something that I wasn't high while I did. And that, that was terrifying. Yeah. You don't have that excuse anymore. No. Like I can't blame it on the dope. Like no. that was just me. That was I just was me. being a shitwad. Yeah. Sorry. That was me as it, that was, it's just a very vulnerable place to go in that process. Um, and it's only gotten more vulnerable for, I've only gotten more vulnerable. Um, and hopefully that still happens. Hopefully I'm always struggling and having a hard time with something. Yeah. You know, that leads um, to growth. Exactly. And I didn't always view it that way, but you know, like over my span of recovery, it's like you were talking about with trauma. I, I mean, it's starting off, like the biggest problem is that I can't stop thinking about alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I, every time I, you know, have one drink, I, I don't know what's going to happen to me. And then it leads into, you know, the way that I'm eating, the way that I'm hurting myself on purpose, the way that I'm, you know, the, the thoughts that are in my mind constantly about how I'm not good and I'm not going to make it. And I'm not, you know, people don't like me and all of that. Like I'm that I'm getting to, and I'm still in a place now, you know, where there is something that is spiritually unwell that I'm noticing far more than other things. Um, that awareness that Mm -hmm. comes out of, being in a spiritual state or in a process of following my higher powers lead. Um, it's just surreal because I had no lead when I was, when I was drinking and quite frankly, from the beginning, you know, until I was shown how to pray, how to meditate, how to, look at myself um, non-judgmentally and honestly, that that did not cross my mind. It did not cross my mind that I could ever be this free. I had no idea. You know, I, I had no idea what recovery was going to look like, what it was going to feel like, or the, the freedom that I would feel. Yeah. And just the, the faith or the trust that I, I would have, like, you know, like I said, these periods I've gone through in my sobriety that were rough, like there's plenty more of them than what I've said. But the the more of them I go through, the more faith I have that God's going to carry me through it again. Like it can come to a point now where I, like I have no money in my bank account. You know, I, I've gone through periods where I'm broke, yes, yeah. broke, like overdraft, scrounged up money to go cover it. Cause stupid stuff. Cause like I spent too much money on credit cards or like some dumb shit. Yeah. But then like the fear is not there anymore. Yeah. You know, I, I know that I haven't always made the, like the best financial decisions in recovery and I'm doing better off now than I, I have previously, but I've been at places where like I was broke and had ultimate faith that God was going to give me what I needed when I needed it. Yeah. And, you know, the money would hit the account at just the right time for me to not catch a crazy overdraft fee or for my next bill to be paid. 
And since I've gotten sober, I've never not once gone without a place to lay my head at night. I've never skipped a meal that wasn't intentional. You know, I've, I've never gone without the basic necessities. I've never been naked because I didn't have any more clothes to wear. Like yeah. every little thing that I've needed, God's provided along the way as long as I've tried to follow him. And that's what's so cool to me. This, this faith that I grew up hearing people talk about and hearing people practice that I never had any real grasp of is now a reality in my life. Yeah. And I also love what you said about the, the vulnerability part of it. I was having this conversation with my sister a couple weeks ago when I was back home about how sometimes I have a hard time like just having basic small talk with people. Because I have a lot of conversations like this where we're like sharing our shit and on a real deep, vulnerable level. And I find that it allows other people to be more vulnerable with me. Mm -hmm. Like when you've heard like, yeah, I did heroin, crashed my car, stole from my grandmother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like somebody who might be struggling with something else feels like they can talk to me about it because how's the heroin junkie going to judge you for your anxiety or for whatever little thing that you've got going on? I shouldn't say little, not to belittle it, but whatever thing that you've got going on in your life, I found that I connect with people now on such a deeper level than I was ever able to before. Because in before sobriety, it was just surface level. You know, we were just right there. Like, we're here, we're partying, woohoo. What are we going to do this weekend? What are we drinking? Oh, did you hit up the weed, man? You know, like, it was nothing real. And now I have so many real friendships, real relationships with people in and out of recovery. And, you know, even people who don't necessarily know my whole recovery story, like, I just have a different way of talking to people and dealing with people and a, a completely different level of empathy for what other people are struggling with. Yeah. Um, It's a really cool thing to me. It is. And it's like, you know, no matter how, how much better my life gets, you know, I don't feel that there, and I I hope that there will never be a time where I don't still have that inside of me, knowing Mm -hmm. what it's like wanting to die and constantly feeling out of place. The list goes on. You know, i I, that I, I can't re- forget those feelings. Yeah, I don't ever want that to leave me. No, I don't. And I, I certainly, you know, I know that my alcoholism is going to want me at times to want to be normal and be able to drink normally and able to go on with my life normally. But I don't want that. Yeah. I don't. And I don't regret being in recovery now. I don't regret anything I've done. I mean, it was wrong. Oh yeah. I'm able to say, and I've said to many people, like my behavior was wrong, but I'm more, more so now I'm grateful for the people that let me have that experience that let me hurt them. Um, so that I can now see that back as an example of what I don't want to be. Absolutely. And what I don't want to do anymore. People look at you crazy when I when I say, like, yeah, I'm really grateful that I got on heroin. Right. It's like that's some wild shit to say. Yeah. But I, I would not be the person that I am today if I had just, like, graduated high school, went to college, 
never had a substance abuse problem, like maybe drank a little like a normal person, like the level of empathy that it's given me, the level of faith that it's given me, the the relationships that I've been able to rebuild, like all of these blessings in my life and the person that I am today are directly correlated yeah. with the journey that I had to walk through to get up to this point. Like I wouldn't go back and change any of it. Like do I wish that I hadn't stolen from my grandmother while she had dementia? Like, yeah, I, I don't wish that I had done that. I'm not happy about that. But at this point, I wouldn't want to change any of it because yeah. today I am happy with who I am. That was something I could never do. Like before getting sober, I didn't like looking in the mirror. I did not like the man who looked back at me. Yeah. And I can look in the mirror today. Like I like who I am. And for the most part, I don't give a damn if you like who I am or not. And that's a really big deal for somebody like me because yeah. I was always so worried about what everybody else thought of me. And your opinion of me was way more valuable to me than my opinion of me. And, like, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Me either. I think this is a good place to stop. Yeah. All right. Well, I kind of talked, like, all through your story. We didn't get to uh, get to a whole lot of that. I threw my pieces in. I, th I threw my parts. <laughs> you got me running my mouth. Here I am talking for a whole hour. If we start on these topics, we're going to have a hard time. Yeah. We're going to need you to do some um, cute, like, 10 more minutes, you know. Can you, we'll work on that next time. Anyways, thank you everyone for tuning in and listening to us tonight um, or whenever you are listening to us. We're always wearing whiskey and milk t-shirts. I've paired mine with some cute pants and Adam is wearing a new t-shirt. Yeah, new uh, new design that dropped earlier this week. If you're a uh, jam band fan or a deadhead, grateful I'm not dead, find us at whiskeymilk.com. We'll right. see you guys next week. Attention, now arriving at your destination, the last house on the block.